The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for our update on tech stocks. I'm joined again by my colleague, Tay Kim, who covers tech for us, often with a focus on semiconductors, video games, social media, and lots of other areas. Hey, Tay, it's good to have you on again. Good to be here, Alex. Since we last talked, I'd say tech earnings have actually gone decently well. Uh, Big tech companies in particular have done better than expected. We get one last big report due from Apple today. I was looking at some of the stats uh, this morning on kind of how earnings have exceeded uh, expectations. And overall, 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 tech sector have beat earnings estimates in the first quarter. That's by, that's a, by a good bit the highest, quote, beat rate among all the S&P 500 sectors. So I think now the question, or one of the questions, is how much of these numbers have already been priced into the market? Um, after last year's wipeout, stocks have soared, tech stocks have soared in 2023. The S&P, IT, S&P 500 IT sector is up 19% on the year. The communication services sector, which includes Meta and Alphabet, is up 22%. Both of those figures blow away all the other sectors and beat the S&P 500's overall gain of 6%. So, you know, Tay, I wanted to start with kind of this first big question, and um, which is how much of the gains that we've seen so far in 2023 now reflect good news that we already know? And, you know, where do you, where do you think we go next? That's the that's, that's tough question. I think I would agree that a lot of good news has been priced into these valuations. And we we spoke about this last week. Uh, A big reason why these large technology company stocks are up, say, you know, 18 to 90% this year is that we had a lot of multiple expansion because interest rates have come down a lot and a lot of fears about the economy, the bank run crisis, um, that helped. And then the second, like, like you said, companies are beating uh, generally, especially big tech. And that that's an improvement in terms of the second derivative. So companies are no longer missing and guiding down. Um, expectations have come down enough where you know, certain companies are beating and raising. Uh, but still, that's the past. Yeah. You have to look at where we are now. And we'll talk about chip companies a little bit different uh, later. But in terms of the big companies, like we said, Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft, um, they're still not growing that that quickly. I mean, we're talking about single-digit growth growth rates, uh, zero to ten percent year over year, versus and they're that, versus and, twenty, thirty, forty percent that we got yeah. used to for many years. Yeah, for the last like three to five years, all these companies were growing at like thirty, forty, like crazy uh, rapid growth rates, and now they're like in, in the single digits. And then valuations are twenty times to sixty times earnings. And it, the old like Peter Lynch fidelity model and Jeff Finnick, they always like to have peg ratios of like one to two at the most. And these are really high valuations for the amount of growth we're getting. And just tell so, us, tell everyone what a peg ratio is? A price to earnings growth. So a, 
say if a company is growing at 10% and the PE is 10, that's a peg ratio of one. Got if it. it's right. 20 times earnings and the growth is 10%, then that's a peg ratio of two. Got it. Uh, so you're paying a lot in terms of valuation for the growth we're getting. So going forward, you have to look at is growth going to start improving uh, to kind of get to those valuations or is it going to go the other way? Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, I often check in on the numbers. I mean, Meta platforms in particular has just been fascinating. And, and then you know, some of the numbers are insane. And it's kind of interesting to take a reality check. And um, so Meta is up 161% over the last six months. You know, I kind of wonder if that's a reflection of people having gotten way too downbeat, say, six months or a year ago. Were they now way too upbeat? Or do you think a, com a combination of both? I, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, six months ago with Meta, um, a lot of activists and funds were asking them to, like, you got to, you know, start cutting the costs, your growth. Like Meta was one of those high flyers that was growing at crazy rates uh, the last few years. And then when they stopped growing and they kept spending and hiring, a lot of funds were like, guys, you got to start cutting. And the problem with Meta for a while, it didn't seem like they were gaining religion and they weren't cost cutting. So yeah. when the stock was at its lows, people thought they would keep spending like crazy, even though growth has come down. Got the it. big difference now is, you know, They've they're probably been the most aggressive large tech company in I think it's three rounds of layoffs and they're cutting right. expenses like crazy. So that's going to help the profitability outlook over the next six to eighteen months. Um, but you know they're still not really growing anymore. So you, you, like we often say, you can't cut your way through prosperity, and it might help in the short term. Um, we're going to talk about Shopify probably later, and it takes off some of the long-term upside if you're cutting your sales staff, employees, and managers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the other bigger topics, and I'll just jump in with this, that we talked about, I think, this week or last week, is this idea that at some point, you've had this big leg up on cost cutting and tech companies getting more efficient. At what point do investors start saying to themselves, what are we going to now be missing out on over the next five years because of all these cost cuts? You know, what innovation will companies not be able to take advantage of or what sales uh what what sales channels won't they be in because they've cut their sales force right? i mean there, there's a reality to cost cuts yeah i mean they hire people because they thought they're going to grow at a certain level and if you don't if we get to the point where you know there is I mean, hopefully things turn around at a certain point and, and demand comes back um they're not going to be able to meet that demand because yeah, they don't have right, the, right. the people or workforce to I, I do think it's something that investors need to be kind of uh, thinking about over the next two to three years for returns, right? So we've had this huge run, as you as you said, cost cutting focused, but you're sort of you're sort of um, almost making a deal with the devil in a sense, right? When you when you yeah. do cost cuts, I, I think the way valuations, I mean, twenty to sixty times earnings again for these uh, large cap uh, technology companies. If growth doesn't reaccelerate to like back to 20 percent soon. Mm -hmm. Like those valuations are coming down. Right. Okay. And and that may be the story for the second half of, uh, of 2023. It'll certainly be worth, uh, important to watch. Um, okay. Let's get to one of your favorite um, subject areas, which is semiconductors. Um, after we got a lot of the big tech names reporting, we've also gotten a lot of the major chip companies reporting, some of whom are better known to listeners and others probably, uh, the, the, some of the biggest have been Qualcomm, AMZ, and Intel. 
they've all reported over the past week. So tell us, um, you know, what have, what have we learned? I, I think the big takeaway is the end markets are getting worse. They're not getting better. Um, everyone's trying to call a bottom for these PC and mobile phone chip names, and there's no bottom in sight. I mean, just taking a step back in terms of the worldwide chip market, it's about 30% PC chips, 20% wireless chips, and 10% consumer chips. So we're talking at more than half the market is from computer chips and wireless smartphone chips. Okay, okay. And I, I think like, like we talked about, we get so caught up on the beat and miss game and the day-to-day stock movements, we have to look at the absolute numbers and the fundamentals. And Intel's March quarter, their sales were down 36% year over year. Like AMD, their main competitor, sales were down 9%, but like they bought like an embedded chip company and there's other moving parts, but their client PC chip business was down 65% year over year. And Qualcomm's March quarter was down nearly 20% year over year. So like the end markets are getting worse, not better. And that, that's a big problem because um, chip stocks as a sector are up, they were up 20%, but now it's uh, up 16 or 17%. So, yeah. so in, in, in the, the smartphone, I mean, I guess declines in PCs, uh, aside from the growth we saw during the pandemic, is not necessarily anything new. But sort of the declines in this, what was once a big growth area of smartphones is kind of something new, right? Yeah, I mean, like, people are not um, similar to computers, but I think for smartphones, the, the year-to-year innovation used to be really good. Right, right. But it's... It's gone down a lot uh, the last, I'd say, two to three years, and people aren't replacing their phones as much anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. It is, it is uh, pretty amazing that we all think of PCs to some degree as like necessary items, but we know it's not, you know, you kind of know it's not a big growth area and you understand why. It's fascinating to me that we're already reaching that point of, of, of for smartphones as well, or at least getting closer, where it's becoming more of a commodity. As you said, it's, there's not as much innovation. Everyone needs one. But that doesn't mean they're buying one every year anymore. Yeah, they're they're not, and people aren't upgrading as much. Um, the one thing I do want to call out with Qualcomm, which is like one, is probably the biggest supplier of smartphone chips. They said last night when they reported that the market deteriorated again worse than they thought. They thought, you know, mobile phones would decline at a certain rate. It's actually getting much worse. Okay. And three months ago, they said, you know, there's probably like it's going to take six months for inventory to clear up at least. And that was, you know, at the beginning of the year, they okay. said again, last night, it's going to take at least another two quarters for oh, piles of inventory to clear up. So the people like to call the bottom and it always seems to be at least two quarters away. And it just means the the rebound is a lot farther out than people think. Got it. And, and this chips tend to be somewhat cyclical in that way. Right. And I mean, this, Cycles aren't new for chips, uh, but yes, uh, I mean, in the past, like, like if you bought when things were bleakest, you, you buy these stocks and then things rebound. Like it's called the V bottom. It yeah, looks like yeah. a V. Okay. But the problem is that that paid off in the past. But this time it might be different. Like it might be an L bottom where you know things don't go off to races off the off the lows anymore. Um, similar to computers, like like you said, like maybe a lot of people bought com- consumer electronics and phones and computers uh, during the pandemic, and they might just hold on to, to their devices that, that, that they bought like two, three years ago um, for much longer. Yeah. And that yeah. just means improvements going to be much farther away. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say it continues to amaze me the degree to which the pandemic buying habits um, have just, you know, continue to reshape cycles and patterns and, and, and bring up trends that we're, we've never really seen before. And I think that's part of what you're explaining, like the V, that normal V recovery could look more like an L recovery um, and why maybe this time really is different. Yeah, I mean, pandemic was so unprecedented what yeah. it did to worldwide tech demand. Um, it's, I think there's going to be long-term ramifications that yeah. people aren't thinking through uh, just playing the historical playbook. Yeah, and it's great. Fascinating. Um, okay, one other thing we heard a lot or a decent amount uh, from, from the chip companies, uh, they have a lot of exposure to China and can give us a good read into China. So what, what, were, we, what were we hearing there? Um, what, are, what are those companies seeing in China? So the big, one of the biggest bull cases, I, I would say over the last like three to six months is don't worry guys, China is going to reopen and people are going to start buying uh, consumer electronics and chips again. But what we saw over the last week is Intel did get some people excited with green shoes comments, but I, I would actually look at the numbers and say, well, it, it's not really hitting. Um, AMD said they saw some improvement, like in particular customers, but it was not broad-based. It was very company by company. And you could tell by AMD's guidance uh, for the June quarter, they don't have much visibility either. And Qualcomm was the most emphatic saying that they saw no evidence of recovery whatsoever in China. So I, I think the clear message here is like China, at least for uh, the chip makers, haven't really rebounded or started recovering yet. Okay. And we're not even talking about the geopolitical issues with this. We're talking about the actual Chinese consumer and what they're buying, right? Yes. Pure end market demand in terms of phones and computers. Okay. And that, and that remains important. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and geopo geopolitics wise, that's sort of just still a wild card, right? Yes. Um, I, I mean, what the Biden administration has done so far is kind of limit the chip making technologies and the super high end kind of AI chips. That doesn't really affect, you know, the main revenue driver, which is uh, consumer smartphones and uh, PCs. Got it. Okay. But what we're waiting for is for Chinese consumers to step up and, and, and buy again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So I just want to remind folks uh, to also submit questions and we will try to get to them uh, shortly. And uh, so Tay, tonight we get kind of the uh, maybe most interesting, I, I don't know, some might quibble with whether it's the most important, but the most important earnings report um, this evening from Apple. So uh, give, us, um, give us a preview. You've sort of already told us somewhat about smartphone demand. That's a huge part of Apple's business still, of course. What are you expecting to hear from, from Apple after the close today? I would expect to see some weakness. Um, Qualcomm said on their call they saw a large customer reduce modem orders, and most of the analysts uh, this morning are speculating that was Apple. Um, the street expects sales growth for Apple of growth in the June quarter, and that's probably not going to happen. I mean, we, we saw like the max sales and consumer um, demand for computers and iPhones will probably roll over. So I wouldn't expect a great quarter. Uh, and, and they give like they don't give exact revenue guidance anymore uh, due to economic uncertainty from the pandemic, but they do give kind of like qualitative directional guidance right, right. Uh, for, for the June quarter. And it probably is not going to be that great. But that being said, like, I, I, like I've said before, I think people 
with Apple are more willing to look through any kind of short-term weakness because they're they're more confident three to five years from now, um, Apple's iPhone revenue is going to be higher. Okay. All right. And I, I will say for Apple, um, as important as earnings are, a month from now, approximately, we're going to get the next Worldwide Developers Conference. There's been a lot of hype about what they may be announcing at that conference, including their virtual reality, augmented reality goggles. Any um, is it, it, Once earnings are, are in the past, is everyone just going to be laser focused on AR and VR for Apple and what it might mean, do you think? I, I think it will be good for like stirring excitement in the press per se, but it's, I mean, it's going to be a, not a big market for the next few years because Apple's supposedly the, the price is going to be like way over a thousand dollars. So I think this is more like an emerging market where they want to get the foot in the door and get the app developers going, but it's not going to re- really drive revenue until a few, year, a few years out. Okay. Um, yeah. I, but yeah. they, they are speculate, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of murmurs that a 15 inch MacBook air is going to come out and that, that should sell really well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And for the, um, for the virtual reality and or augmented reality goggles, I've been I've been sort of thinking about it a lot, like the Apple Watch, right? I mean, perhaps the 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 ceiling for those goggles is even higher than the watch. But it took a good what ten years for the Apple Watch to really turn into a, a hit, if if you can even call it that now. I mean, we barely even know. We we only know so much about the business, but right. I mean, this was a ten year project in a sense for Apple. Mm-hmm. So I imagine they they think long term, as as you said. Yes, um, but it will be exciting to see like what Apple has in store uh, compared to what Meta does with the their Quest line. Absolutely, I mean it's always fun to see a real Apple product launch of, of a new product. So, um, yeah, we'll be watching that carefully for sure. Um, all right, so another t- you brought up um, Shopify earlier. So last I looked, Shopify, which is kind of a somewhat of an Amazon rival, but several years they became, uh, they created an e-commerce kind of plug and play software for merchants to turn, to create websites essentially, right? For folks who don't know, they had been a huge hit during the pandemic and sold off hard. They're up, I think about 30% today on earnings. It's not really just about an earnings story though, right? So why is Shopify up 30%? What does it tell us, do you think, about the future of e-commerce? So... It's it's a bit sad to see this news this morning. Uh, a few years ago, we covered Shopify pretty closely. Yeah, uh, they they had like these really big ambitions to fully take on Amazon, you know, buying this the robot warehouse uh, company where the robots are moving uh, boxes around inside fulfillment centers, um, building out their logistics operations. So th- they were like the one company that said we're going to take on Amazon straight on, and they are giving up on that uh, this morning by uh, selling all the robot stuff and selling their logistics operation to some private company. So it, it, it's sad to see. They're, they're refocusing to be a pure e-commerce software play. And the market's excited that you know they don't have to spend all that capital uh, in terms of capital expenditures um, and focus back on you know, e-commerce. And they, they are also announcing major restructuring of another 20% layoff off on top of the 10% layoffs they had a year ago. Okay. Uh, but we, we, we have to have the context. The stock used to be $150. And you know, if it's in the high 50s, it's still a lot down uh, from where it was before. Absolutely. I mean, and I think, um, you know, so basically, this is another 
rally on cost cutting. This is not a company that's seen a return to growth. A tech company has seen a return to growth. It's another tech company pulling back on its ambitions and investors, at least for now, are cheering that. Yes, uh, sort of like Meta. Um, it, it, it's, I, I think investors are just taking the view that you can't be Amazon when Amazon's willing to, uh, if you look at last year's numbers, um, Amazon lost $11 billion in yeah. operating profit. I mean, that, that's a massive number outside of their AWS business. So Amazon's, and Amazon's the biggest retail e-commerce company, right? Yeah. And if Amazon's willing to lose, you know, eleven billion dollars for anything that's not cloud computing, it, it's it's impossible to compete against that. Right. And and investors are like, oh, phew, you know, at least we don't have to compete against Amazon anymore. But but it's it's sad to see because I, I do think if we did not have this massive kind of overbuild pandemic thing. Uh, with the massive infrastructure bill and then the, the fall off in e-commerce afterwards, um, Shopify would have been would have had a chance, but now they they just can't compete for right. Amazon. And okay, and I, if I, I was looking for sort of a broader takeaway here on the Shopify story, we had a little bit of a, a debate about this this morning. But um, to me, this is an indication. You know, basically, Shopify was a software company started by you know a guy who liked to code and, and created websites for for merchants. And then ambitions continued to grow. And as we talked about, they took on logistics and actually getting the actual products to customers. The fact that they're pulling back on that to me, it sort of suggests that tech disruption is not inevitable. You know, it's one thing to write software, but taking that next step it can be difficult. And, and most companies, a lot of companies can't pull it off. And it's just where it's interesting to think about that. Sometimes we, um, we overdo the disruption um, that that tech can can create. I, I would agree with that partly like software and then logistics is a totally different animal. Yeah, right. um, Jeff Bezos was able to figure out but like, not there aren't that many uh, Bezos out there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's just, uh, you know, is my uh, more abstract thinking on this one. Okay. Let's, um, we have a few minutes left. Let's talk about, you've been testing out uh, one of the few lucky ones who's been testing out Blue Sky. Um, for those listeners who have not heard of Blue Sky, tell us what it is and uh, why we might be hearing more about it. So Blue Sky is kind of the Twitter alternative of the moment. It's getting a lot of press and, uh, excitement right now it has a really fascinating origin story because it came out of twitter like when jack dorsey was the twitter ceo he funded blue sky uh just as a research project project to develop a decentralized protocol like the way email works today but for microblogging okay. and it's similar to the decentralized uh setup of mastodon but then later after twitter got bought by elon and around that time um they decided to sever funding in relations with uh, Blue Sky. And then Dorsey stayed on as a board, one of three board members of Blue Sky. And one of the developers at Blue Sky, as they're developing this protocol, which is still in development, decide to create a Twitter-like app that works exactly like Twitter. And the first few weeks, there was only a couple hundred members using the Blue Sky app. But then in the last, like I'd say three to four weeks, it just completely blew up. Uh, in, in terms of membership, it's about 50,000 people now. And it turned out like people are really thirsting for an easy to use uh, microblogging app that worked and looked exactly like Twitter. 
literally it's almost like a carbon copy of twitter you showed Um, it yeah you showed it to me and i was a little bit shocked that um it they i I might not have known from the screenshot that it wasn't twitter yeah i mean it's like the the icons look almost exactly the same and they're all in the same places and people are creatures of habit like mastodon works a little different like the design is a little different people just wanted twitter to be twitter and there's a huge section of the population that's been kind of alienated by some of Musk's uh, you know, management, technical problems, you know, a different content moderation policy. So they're looking for an alternative. And it looks like for a large chunk of, I would say the more famous social media influencers, uh, some politicians, um, Blue Sky is kind of filling that void for them. So we'll see what happens. I mean, there's no business model for Blue Sky yet. You know, there are only 50,000 people. So if they scale to 500,000, a million, it, there's going to be a lot of challenges on the moderation front. But for now, a lot of the kind of most popular people on Twitter have uh, moved on to Blue Sky and they're they're posting more there. They, they call it, instead of tweeting, they call it skeeting. Um, <laughs> okay. Because uh, Blue Sky with SK at the end. But all right, well, we'll, I am, we'll see what happens. I am looking forward to trying it out. I have not yet gotten my invite, Tay. Um, so if anyone on this call wants to send me an invite, uh, you know, I, <laughs> that would be great. Um, but I, I look forward to trying it out um, soon. Uh, let's see. Okay, I want to just turn to some questions. Um, one of the questions we got from Rita is, what's the outlook for big tech versus small tech? Uh, and she adds for AI, but I do think this big tech, small tech divide is an interesting one. Any any takeaways or uh, thoughts there? The, the one thing I would say is big tech is probably going to do better than small tech, and it's kind of related to the AI stuff. If AI does take off, I have some skepticism about uh, in terms of generative AI. The companies that are able to afford it are only the large companies because the AI stuff costs a lot of money. I mean, yeah, yeah. there is speculation that uh, OpenAI, the, uh, the the startup that's behind ChatGPT and Microsoft, that are lost like hundreds of millions of dollars last year, and they're they're going to a different level this year. So they're they're probably lo- going to lose over a billion dollars because the computing uh, to do all this stuff costs a ton of money. So the big tech companies are the ones that have the money and that can afford to fund these projects. And the other side is um, a lot of these big tech companies have these dominant, I, I, I won't use the word monopoly, but monopoly type dominant uh, positions in all these categories where they can kind of harvest the profits from. So we have um, Alphabet uh, with its Google search engine, Meta, even though you know they're not growing, like Instagram and Facebook have really strong competitive positions where they can kind of harvest the profits. Uh, Microsoft has Windows operating system, uh, sub- subscription model for their productivity software. So they have these dominant positions in these massive categories that are going to be defensive if uh, we go into a recession. Compared to smaller tech companies that might have markets where, um, say, a small enterprise software company that's trying to get a foothold in, say, CRM, they might be the first uh, vendor to get cut like when there's IT budget cuts. Right, right. And I, okay. And I guess the one thing I would point out, and we've seen this play out for decades, right, is that the downside for big tech is they have lots more markets to protect. The worry is they can't be as nimble and and move to new technologies as quickly. Uh, So I think 
that that's always fascinating to to watch. Microsoft, I think, has been very successful in recent years uh, of of not kind of resting on its laurels. Um, so that's that's certainly one thing I, I'd be watching between how big tech players innovate versus small tech ones. Um, okay, so it's fascinating. I'd say more than half the questions today we're getting today are about AI. So um, let's do another AI-focused question. John asks, has the market truly understood how AI will be monetized as it relates to the recent surge in big tech stock prices? And I think that's a great question, John. And I ask that same exact question all the time, too, because all these generative AI things are things that are being tacked on to current apps, and current services. Right. And for the most part, with with the exception of maybe Snap, they're not really charging extra for it. Um, and that's my question is like, what is the return on investment? We just came out of this cycle where, you know, pro profitability didn't matter. And now profits matter. And I always ask, like, how are our companies going to make money off these new AI services? And I think a lot of the, the capabilities that have been marketed for these AI services have been conflated. And people aren't doing the, the verification work saying, you say it can do this, is right. actually doing that. Right. And then will consumers actually pay a lot more uh, for, for this extra service that may or may not actually meet the the capabilities that are promised. Right. And we're going to see that, you know, in the coming quarters, uh, as this excitement keeps going, uh, what I call a hype cycle, but yeah, we'll, we'll see if it, it can get monetized. And I have my doubts. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting way in which asking consumers or, or businesses to pay for something very quickly cuts through hype, right? Once you put a price on it, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to justify, um, the hype. Yes. And uh, like we said before, I would really encourage you all to ask uh, ChatGPT and Bing AI chatbots about a question about an, an area or topic that you know about. Because if you ask it a question about a topic you don't know about, the answer that comes back sounds very confidently and plausible uh, in terms of answer, but it may not be accurate. So you should have a proper assessment of what these services can do uh, by asking the chatbot a question about a topic you know about and you might be surprised that it doesn't really know anything <laughs> okay um all right well i want to do uh one more question before we before we leave and i'll do a, one of the non-ai ones so um felicia asked whether there will be a divergence between foundry companies and software companies so maybe taking you first kind of frame why that question may be, you know, what, what does that question represent when we talk about foundry companies versus software companies? I think what, what Felicia is asking is about like the big third-party foundry chip makers. We have like Taiwan Semiconductor, which is a big one. And then in terms of chip design software companies, maybe. Okay. And, and, and foundry is just to point out is where the actual hard work of manufacturing chips is happening, right? Yes. I mean, so... The two, the two biggest kind of chip makers in the world in terms of actually building your chips are Taiwan Semiconductor and uh, Intel. And I just don't see much change in terms of their positions in the market. Um, Taiwan Semiconductor, it's, it's almost like a chef and they know all the recipes oh, and one. all yeah. those recipes are inside Taiwan Semiconductor to 
to make these chips efficiently with uh, efficiently with the highest yield. Right. And they they spend like they're estimated to spend thirty two billion to thirty six billion dollars in capex building these factories per year. Uh, Intel the street is expecting them to spend twenty billion. So I just don't see much change on the competitive front because no one else can has has the business and the customers to uh, spend at that level. Yeah. So yeah. Like the rich get richer. And, right. you know. and just to extend your metaphor a little bit, which I like the, uh, the chef one, we have companies that sort of help chip companies design um, their chips. Maybe they write their, they write the cookbooks, right. Or they create the recipes. One of those big companies is one called arm holdings. That's um, currently owned by SoftBank, but it's likely to go public sometime this year. Is that a company people should be watching for, at least when it goes public? Yes. I, I mean, that they've had a tough time because they charge so little royalty rates for the designs and architecture they sell to all the chip designers in the world. Okay. And they're, I, I do have, I did read that they're trying to ch change their contracts where they get a higher percent of uh, the money. Um, but that's the big question. Are they going to be able to uh, change those contracts with uh, chip designers and get more money out of the system? And that's probably the big question going into the IPO. Uh, if, they, if they are able to do that, then it's much more interesting. But if they continue the current model where they're making like a few pennies uh, per chip, that's less interesting. Okay. All right. And I think ARM, I mean, IPOs maybe are just starting to creep back. If we get an ARM IPO, it'll say a lot about the dynamics of the tech market, I think. So we'll definitely be talking more about that one. Um, all right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Tay, this was great. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow. Our colleagues at Mansion Global and Realtor.com are going to be talking to Janet Horlacher, who's a St. Louis real estate broker on why St. Louis recently topped the latest ranking of luxury housing markets and what's currently driving trends around luxury housing. So thanks for listening and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.